Well, hi, I'm BJ, one of the staff pastors here. And uh, before we dive into the message, we like to read a little scripture um, to get our hearts set. Um, This is from Isaiah 40, it's verses 10 through 13. And it says this, See, the Lord comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on the scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who gave him counsel? Good morning, church. Didn't think I was here, did you? <laughs> I scared so many people in the corner back there as we were doing worship because I wasn't actually singing. I was just hiding. And as they walked by me, I was like, good morning. They're like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, you picked the wrong Sunday to stroll in the back. Well, it's good to see you guys. If this is your first time and you're a visitor, I just want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here to uh, worship with us this morning. My name's Mike. I'm also one of the staff pastors here at Transform, and um, most of you know that, but I always like to introduce and um, just tell you we're so glad that you're here uh, to gather with us. So uh, this morning, if you would turn to the book of Habakkuk, in the collection of the Minor Prophets, we're going to continue our Sunday morning series going through this pro- prophetic book, and we're going verse by verse. Last week, we made it through all of four verses. We'll do a little better today. Um, but as you turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, I just wanted to begin our time by quoting from uh, Paul Tripp, who wrote this recently. He said, the desire for even a good thing can become a bad thing if it becomes a ruling thing. I'll say that again. The desire for even a good thing can become a bad thing if it becomes a ruling thing. Now, we've talked about this recently. It seems like it's been coming up more and more um, as we have talked about things that we make idols in our lives. And, and it's been something that the Lord has put on my heart um, a lot in the last year. Um, most of us are familiar with making idols of good things God has given us. And by familiar, I mean it's something that we have struggled with, and maybe it could be something that we're not even that aware of. It explains why we're so often confused when he takes good things away from us. Do you ever struggle with that when God actually takes something that's good away from you, and you feel like you've been slighted, or how could this possibly be what God wants when this was such a good thing? We struggle to make sense of his purpose and love for us, when he would take something that is not blatantly sinful from our lives. But it's at this juncture that I remember um, what the writer of Hebrews says when he says, let us be free of the weight and be free of the sin that clings. He differentiates between two things. He says there's weight that we carry around that's unnecessary and there's also sin that's clinging to you. And I think that oftentimes we don't like it when God takes something that we would consider a good thing away from us And we want to argue with them about it. We want to wrestle with them over this good thing. No, this is my good thing, right? And it's just like when we're parents and our kids are fighting over something that is a good thing that we bought for them at Christmas with one of their siblings. 
And they're going back and forth. It's like, how did this good thing become such a, a problem? It was meant to be a gift. It was meant to be something that blessed you, and now you're fighting with your sister over it or even using it as a weapon. And so what do we do as good parents? We take the good thing away because it's become something that's far too important. It has far too much importance in our kids' lives. You guys, a desire, that's right, kids, I'm coming, a desire, a family, it's not a sin to better home for our families or even a better work situation. It's not a sin to desire healthy relationships and hobbies. But the problem is that oftentimes we struggle with keeping these good things in their proper place. In their proper place in our lives and we become like the Greeks where we're lining up idols for ourselves and every day depending on what we're in the mood for, we're going to those things as an idol and we're worshiping at the idol of our stuff or our jobs, or relationships. Good things. But we made them ultimate. Useful tools in life, but terrible masters. The draw to these masters, if you really think about it, you start dialing it down in our own hearts, we realize is control. You could say the source is pride. But it's something that we can control. The beauty of an idol, beauty, (laughs) it's fake, it's plastic. The beauty of an idol to us is it's something that we can control. It's something that we have selection over. We have power over. And so in the end, we're just worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping our own desires and the things that we want the most. We feel more in control if the object of our desire is something that we can rule. And this is a temptation, I believe, for all of us for the entirety of our lives lived in this sinful flesh. Because there is a constant barrage of things that are appealing for our attention and telling us that we so desperately need them and we start to listen. If you don't believe me, watch one Seattle Mariners baseball game. I watched one game that turned into two yesterday. It was heartbreaking. But the advertisements that kept coming, they just come as a barrage. You need this. You need that. You know what you should watch? You should try this. Do you know what would make you look better? I'm like, <laughs> now that's a clear lie. Claire, I'll never work that well for me. Kids are like, Claire, all? <laughs> Hair color. All right, you guys, thankfully, God has given us his word. Thankfully, God has given us his word, and this is what we must go back to over and over again. And if you've heard this a thousand times, please allow me to say it for a thousand and one. We need the word of God to be a plumb line for our lives to identify the idols. God's word is the plumb line. It's the line by which we measure to see if our walls are straight, if we're putting up structures in our lives that are actually upright and straight and true based on the foundation of Jesus. God used the picture of a plumb line to show the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 7 that his people, that the nation of Israel, God, that the nation of Israel, <laughs> he's, I know, all right, give me the, f- yes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you want me to describe a plumb line? I don't know what it is. I'm just kidding. You guys, in Amos chapter seven, God says, here's the thing. He's like, I have put up my plumb line and measured to see if my people are actually upright and true, and they're not. 
This is what the word of God does for us. It calibrates us. And so when we want to do some deep diving into figuring out what's really going on regarding these idols that we raise up in our lives, God's word is how we measure. Our faith is challenged by the will and actions of God. And when that faith is placed in anything besides him, we crumble. The walls come down. Yeah, that's right. I brought faith into this picture. Because if we have idols, we're putting our faith in the wrong thing. It always comes down to where our faith is placed. It always comes down to what we're trusting and hoping in. And church, we need to understand this. Building our faith begins with making certain that our faith is rightly placed. If you want your faith to be built, we have to make certain that our faith is where it should be. It's placed in the source and in the strength of God himself. This concept, if you're wondering how in the world this connects to Habakkuk, it does. This concept comes into play here, and I want to remind you as we get into our text for this morning, and we begin with verse 5, that this is a dialogue that's going on in between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk looks at the situation of the nation of Judah, and he says, this place is a wreck. Why? Idolatry. Idolatry. It was everywhere. And so he says, what are you going to do, God? How are you going to handle this situation? And so here in verse 5, and we're going to read down through this section and the following section. In verse 5, God responds. And guess what? Habakkuk doesn't like it. You've been there. Maybe you were there this morning. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe God's saying something to you right now that you're like, I don't want this. I don't like this. And we need to face it. We need to deal with it. So here in our text this morning, we're going to read through verse 17. We're going to look at God's response to what Habakkuk said in the first four verses. And then we're going to look at Habakkuk's response back to God once God says what he has to say because he doesn't like it. And he's struggling with it. And I think this will minister to us in a really powerful way. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is God speaking. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. Their views of justice and sovereignty. Horses? Their horses, birds, and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles swooping down to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Now Habakkuk responds, Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You've made mankind like the fish of the sea, 
like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet, and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they're glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask for just a moment here for a clarity, for submitted hearts, even in the midst of hearing difficult truth. God, I ask for a softness in us that can receive the seed of your word and that it would grow, that it would grow in us and we would understand that we would draw near to you. Lord, knowing that you will draw near to us, would you help us to see how this instructs us? And Lord, humble us. In the light of your sovereignty, in the light of your goodness, humble us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a scary thing when God tells you he's going to do something that you couldn't even guess. When God says, I'm going to do something that you won't even believe it when you hear it. Look at the nations, he says. Observe, be utterly astounded. I'm doing something in your days that you won't believe when you hear about it. This is God's prophet. God's prophets were used to crazy stuff. God's prophets were used to him doing things out of the ordinary. And God looks at his prophet Habakkuk and he says, I'm going to do something that even you won't believe. And this is how I'm going to do it. Verse 6 says, look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. We talked uh, last week as we did a little bit of background on Babylon and talked about how the Chaldeans were a group of Babylonians that rose from the south and took power right around this time. And so the term Babylonian and uh, Chaldean became synonymous with each other. Certainly not what Habakkuk expected God to answer with. God says so himself. You didn't expect this, but here it is. Ever been there? You didn't expect this, but here it is. This is how it is. The judgment of Judah, which Habakkuk opened this prophecy crying out to God to deal with because of how wicked they have become, it's going to come. The judgment is coming, but the way it's going to happen is not only unheard of, but it's terribly vexing. It's terribly vexing for Habakkuk. His response, if you could like summarize all of what he says in response to what God says would be, what? That's really his posture. He's like, you got to help me with this one. I can't make sense of that. It's not going to come the expected way that the prophet's thinking. Babylon will come, and not only will they come, but God himself will raise them up to bring his judgment. God is the one who's raising them up. Isn't it interesting how when we call out to God, oftentimes we're expecting not only the answer we desire, but for him to work in our way to accomplish our request. God, this is what I would like for you to do. We just had a prayer night uh, here about a week ago. We went all the way through the night. And as we were praying, it's interesting to me how even as I pray by myself, oftentimes as I'm asking God for things, I'm imagining how he's going to do it. And I could just see it coming because I'm a visionary, right? Which means I'm always right. 
God's going to do this, and he's going to do this over here, and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. There will be no pain. There's going to be no discomfort. All the food will be sweet, and I can eat all of it with no threat of calories. Yeah, we really are that fantasyful, aren't we? We actually think that this isn't going to be a difficult process. And yet over and over again, we're reminded through Scripture, and we're reminded by experience in life that growth comes from difficulty. That strength comes from being tried. That it's in the struggle and in the battles that we're made strong. It's so interesting to me how often I call out to God expecting Him to work in my way. The way I foresee him doing it, because I'm so smart. It's almost like we expect him to line up with those idols in our lives. It's almost like we've been training ourselves for this. You know, well, I go to this thing when I need that thing to happen, so this is the part where I go to God and he does that thing that I need him to do, and then I'll shift on and do this. And that's not how God works. The almighty sovereign God of the universe does what he wishes to do, and it's our job to trust him that what he does will be good. And that's hard for us to grasp in the heat of the moment. That's hard to grab hold of when things are not easy. You guys notice this about the text in just these first two verses we looked at in verses 5 and 6. God gave Habakkuk a revelation, not an explanation. He gave Habakkuk a revelation of what he was going to do. He did not give an explanation of what the times of being God and It's a new view of see God in a clearer way rather than I need him to explain what he's doing to me. The Lord doesn't owe any explanations, but he's gracious and reveals himself and his work to those who seek after him. If we call out to him, he'll show us what he's going to do. That's exactly what he did with Habakkuk. And how many times has he shown you what he's going to do? It's like, okay, God's doing this, but wait, how are we getting there? And we pull out Google Maps in our lives. God, if we take this route, it's a lot easier. (laughs) You realize that, right? I know you're God, but like, I mean, you see that this is by far the better route to go. And God's like, no, we're going through Death Valley. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with me. He's with us there. In order for our faith to grow, we don't need an explanation. We need to trust him. We need to believe. Maybe that's what too many of us have been waiting for is for God to explain himself to us and in the meantime, our walk with the Lord is stagnated because we're afraid to follow him. We're afraid to trust him without an explanation. Maybe that's why we're stagnating. We'd have to surrender our control. We'd have to follow him fully, not really knowing how this is going to play out. We'd have to surrender, and that's precisely what we need to do. It's interesting how often, to me, we think about growing our faith in the Lord. I want to have a stronger faith. I want to I want to trust in God. Just a closer walk with thee. Right? And it's a tough road. It's a really, really tough road. 
For more on that, read Hebrews 11. Those people didn't have their faith grown through easiness of life, for lack of a better term. It wasn't ease of life. It was difficulty. The Lord gives a series of analogies beginning in verse 7. Take a look at these. These are interesting and horrifying. (laughs) Don't you love good news? God says, well, here's the thing. Here's why I'm using the Chaldeans. They're fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses, I said it correct that time, are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, sweeping to devour. This is all the bad parts of Lord of the Rings. Even though the eagles are good, just picture wraiths. All of them come to do violence, wraiths. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. And if that wasn't enough, verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. You ever tried to stop the wind or catch it? They're guilty. I love this last statement of verse 11. Their strength is their God. They are guilty, their strength is their God. They worship their strength. Notice something key about what God says in this section. He is aware of who the Babylonians really are. God is not pretending in any way that Babylon is a righteous nation. That they are a nation with good intentions. He's absolutely clear about it. He says... Their views on justice and sovereignty all come from themselves. They don't come from divine revelation. Justice and sovereignty is self-decided for the Babylonians. They do what they want. And they're powerful enough to get away with it. I can't help but think about the Roman nation as well. The Roman Empire. Same way. They just made up their own rules. They did whatever they wanted. God points this out as well in the idea of him being aware of who the Babylonians really are. He uses predator illustrations. They're like leopards, wolves, eagles, all predators. All allude to the ferocity of the Babylonian war machine that was unstoppable in this time period. Assyria had faded to nothingness. The Egyptians were about to be beaten back out of the land of Israel and Babylon was about to take over. Babylon was the unstoppable force of humanity at this point, and God is well aware of what they're like. Even though we're often in distress over what we see, we must never forget, church, that God is aware of what people are really about. Isn't it interesting how often we're very concerned that others understand what other people are really about? We go and spend a lot of our time trying to convince other people, you don't understand this person's evil. They don't like me. They said bad things about me. By the way, if you're part of that club with me, I have t-shirts. I'll hand them out. My patients are like, no shortage of that. Paul said in Galatians, of pleasing, business of a lot of people, he says, listen, if I was pleasing to men, I wouldn't be pleasing to God. I need to be pleasing to God most. That's what we're here to do. 
God is aware of people's intentions. God is aware of what they're doing. I don't have to run around freaking out about it. I have to walk out my life in a manner worthy of the calling according to Ephesians chapter 4. I need to live in a manner worthy of my calling. I think we forget sometimes that Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 teaches us that no creature is hidden from him. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees it all. He sees every bit of what's going on in this world. He's aware of what the Babylonians are all about. He notes this as well. Their violence is noted in this passage. And remember that this is a punishment for the violence that the nation of Judah had allowed Habakkuk talked about it in the prior verses. He says, look at the violence of this nation. And God says, I'm going to bring violence upon them through the Babylonians. Although God had shown great mercy and patience towards his people, the time had come for justice to be done. And notice how God ends his pronouncement of judgment. They sweep by like the wind and pass through. You're not going to stop them. You're not going to stop them. But God says this, I recognize them as guilty and their strength doesn't come from me. Do you see that glimmer of hope? God says their strength is in themselves. Who is our strength in? Church, who is our strength in? Our strength is in the Lord. Think Psalm 28 verses 7 through 9. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart celebrates, and I give thanks to him with my song. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is a stronghold of salvation for his anointed. Save your people. Bless your possession. Shepherd them and carry them forever. The song of triumph that says, listen, my strength is in the Lord. I can trust in him. Are tough times coming? Oh, yeah. But my strength is in the Lord. Their strengths in themselves. That means they're going to run out of strength. In God, we have a limitless supply. Psalm 18, verses 1 through 2, just for good measure. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And when we look at what God allows in the world today, never forget that as nations rise and take over strongholds and knock down refuges, that none of them are going to knock down the stronghold of our God. Ever. We fight from the victory of Jesus Christ, not for it. Jesus has already conquered. Christ is already the victor. Church, never forget that. Don't allow yourselves to get disheartened. He is our rock. Interestingly enough, this is exactly where Habakkuk goes in his response, even though he doesn't understand how God is going to use the Babylonians. Like, how can God do this? How can he use them? He goes to this same picture of God being his rock. Look at verse 12 with me. It's almost like he read the Psalms. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? This is verse 12. My holy one, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. 
my rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? He's speaking of the Babylonians. Something fascinating about this passage, allow me to be a teacher for just a second. Habakkuk reasoned that since God is holy, he must be using Babylon as an implement of his judgment on Judah. But interestingly enough, all the manuscripts literally read, we will not die. You see that in the text where it says, my holy one, the second line of verse 12, you will not die. All the original manuscripts read, we will not die, rather than you will not die. But the CSB, the version that I'm reading from this morning, and most translations will follow the Jewish tradition that says you was original, and that this verse is one of 18 places where the Hebrew Bible was deliberately changed by scribes. If so, the change the scribes made here aimed to avoid any hint of the unthinkable notion that God could die. They went to the extreme. Just a little textual criticism for you. We're back here in Habakkuk now, switching into preaching mode. Can you feel Habakkuk wrestling with what God's doing here? Can you feel him wrestling with this? In verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. Why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? G. Campbell Morgan said this, Men of faith are always the men who have to confront problems. I'll add this, people of faith, men and women of faith are always going to be a people who have to confront problems. You cannot avoid them. You cannot run from them. If you are going to trust in God, you are going to have to confront problems and not go around them. If you aim to avoid confrontation your entire life, you will not grow in your walk. Now, giving a peaceful answer is wise. And seeking, as Paul says, to be at peace as much as it depends upon you to live peaceably with all, that's wise. But church, how many of us have accomplished that in our lifetime? To where every situation we were able to walk out, and right we do whatsoever. Confrontation is a part of what we do, but it is what we do. Being in ministry for not a, a terribly long time, but about a decade and a half now, confrontation is unavoidable. It's absolutely unavoidable if you desire to honor Jesus in what you do. You are going to have to have confrontation. You guys, if we believe in God, if we believe in Him, then we're going to wonder at times why he allows certain things to happen. We have to keep in mind something that Wearsby said. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Many of us have experienced doubt. Unbelief is where we start to disbelieve or distrust God in the process. And that's when we have a problem. 
Doubts are a part of life. We are finite human beings who are trying to make sense of an infinite God. Of course we're going to have doubts. But unbelief cannot be named among us. We can doubt or even debate and still believe in God. Habakkuk did it well. He's wondering how. He's doubting. He's struggling. But his belief is still in God. He still calls the God of the universe my rock. He doesn't cease to believe in God when he questions. He clearly establishes his belief. But the choice that God's making still doesn't make sense to him. And he even feels free to use an analogy of his own. God uses this anal- these analogies, talking about the leopard, the wolves, the eagles, and, and Habakkuk's like, well, God, this is how I see it. Verse 14, you've made mankind like the fish of the sea. Under the sea. Like marine creatures. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like marine creatures that have no ruler. You spend a week in my house, you'll understand. You'll understand where this all comes from. You guys, the Chaldeans, he says, they pull them all up with a hook. He goes, this is what mankind is. We're fish under the sea. We're like marine creatures that have no ruler. We're just swimming around. And here come the Chaldeans. They pull them up with a hook. They catch them in their dragnet. They gather them in their fishing net. And that's why they're so glad. And that's why they rejoice. Because they could just do whatever they want. They're capturing all of these people. And he says, so they start sacrificing to their dragnet, and they burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things, their portion is rich and their food plentiful. They start worshiping the things that they're using, their idols, because they're so successful. And Habakkuk says, God, they are worshiping something besides you because of situations like this. How do I make sense of that? Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? Is this going to go on and on until there are no fish left in the sea? Until they consume everyone? Like fishermen who pull in a huge catch of fish from the sea. And as a result, they begin worshiping their nets. Babylon captured hordes of people and worshiped their own military strength. Remember what he said prior, their strength is their God. Next week, we'll dip into Habakkuk chapter 2, which he continues for just a short period at the beginning of that chapter. And it's a portion of scripture later on in chapter 2 that Paul quotes from in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. It's a verse we're pretty familiar with, it's repeated often comes from Habakkuk chapter 2. What's interesting, and I'm going somewhere with this, just go along with me as you think about nations that are idolatrous getting away with things and what they worship. In Romans 1.17, Paul quotes, the righteous will live by faith. Further along in that chapter, Paul's addressing the unrighteousness of people who reject God's truth. And pursue their own sinful desires. And he says this in chapter 1 verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worship and serve what has been created. Instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Paul says they exchanged proper worship. It's exactly what we see the Babylonians doing here in Habakkuk. Yet again I tend to 
think that because Paul quoted from this text in chapter 2 that we'll study next week, in chapter 1 of Romans, that he's thinking about this passage. He quoted directly from it. And he's talking about the brokenness of mankind, the brokenness of humanity, both in the past and in his day. And he says, this is their problem. They're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They're worshiping something that's been made instead of the God who made it. And we understand that as a church, but I wonder how often we are aware enough that we are prone to the same mistake. That we are prone to worship the thing rather than the God who made it. The Babylonians weren't a godly people. They worshiped and served what was created instead of the creator. And that didn't stop the Lord from using them to accomplish his purposes. And this is where the sovereignty of God gets very difficult for us. And it was very difficult for Habakkuk. And I think that it's something that we're going to wrestle with. And if there's a little bit of encouragement that I can pour over the top of this, we mean that what said good with it. But wrestling leads you to believe that he is good and he is accomplishing his purposes in this this world sometimes it's too much for us to process that's okay what's one of the main things that you hear non-believers say when you're talking them about god about jesus about the bible how can a good god allow suffering comes up all the time it's interesting, they think that we just have these answers. Right? I got an answer for that. What is it? I struggle with it too. The difference is that I still believe in God, despite what I see in this world. Because He is worthy of my worship. Because He has proven Himself faithful. Which means that I need to trust Him even in the times where I don't know. We live in a society that believes that they need to be able to explain everything. You have to show me and explain to me every single bit of what you're trying to convince me of, and then maybe I'll believe it. Is there any need for faith? Aren't Christians supposed to be risk takers? And by that I mean people who step out in faith and do radical things for the glory of God that others would not expect us to do. Aren't we supposed to take leaps of faith that don't have a whole ton of reasoning behind it outside of God's glory? Why are you doing this? I want God to be glorified. That doesn't make financial sense. (laughs) I'm poor anyway. I'm just going to do it. Like, I mean, you guys think about this. Like, when was the last time that we just stepped out and did something for the Lord? Not for ourselves. Not to get attention, not to look more Christian, but because we genuinely want God to be glorified and we're going to stop holding on to things like it's the end of the world if we lose it. What are you afraid to lose in this world that you're holding on to instead of Jesus? What is it that I'm gripping with an iron grip right now that is preventing me from honoring God? We need to look at these things. What's the thing, and so many of us can identify it almost immediately, what's the thing that if God took it away, we wouldn't be like Job? We wouldn't say the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. If he took it away, I would be like, God cannot be good and take this from me. And if you're like, nothing, that would be great. But think about it. 
Think about it first. How glorified would God be if we came to him, church, continually with our hands open and said, what you have given to us, we will give back to you. Why, what if we did it with our lives? What if we actually laid our lives down like a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our act of worship? Yes, I'm quoting Romans 12. And not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In chapter 2, Habakkuk's going to say something where he wants God to renew his people in these days. His day. Say like, renew your work in us in our day. Do you want to see God renew his work in this country again? Do you want to see revival? We've talked about it for a while. We've talked about it for a while. We can't come to God with our fists clenched. If you want to see revival, brokenness, confession, repentance, and open hands, humility is what's required. We have to come to the Lord willing to do whatever it is that he desires to do and take us down whatever road you need to take us down to get there. We're going to put Google Maps away. And we're just going to ask God to take us forward. You guys, here's the, the real key of this text. Our faith in God does not require an explanation for all that he does. My faith in God does not require an explanation. Through this text, we're being challenged to build our faith and I want to remind you of something I said earlier, that building our faith begins with making certain that our faith is rightly placed. We come back to this place of, is my faith actually in Jesus Christ? Is my faith in the rock so that I can build from a solid foundation? Again, I want to remind you the way that we know is we allow the word of God to be a plumb line. Start looking at our walls. Are they straight? You want to know what kind of foundation you're building on from my limited construction experience? You want to know what kind of foundation you're working with? You start taking a look at what your walls are looking like. <laughs> you have a bad foundation, you start putting up walls. It doesn't look good. And your roof, your roof looks even worse. You guys, we got to start looking at what we're actually building on. The Babylonians had it wrong. They trusted in their own strength. Spoiler alert. God's going to judge them too. He gets to that. He says, don't think I'm letting them get away with it. I'm going to judge the Babylonians. I'm going to deal with them. But God's going to do it in his time. Do we trust God to use his own process? Do we agree with it and go with him? Are we aligning our will with his? Or are we fighting against him? Is Jesus our foundation stone? Church, I, I don't ask those questions because I assume that the answer is no. I ask that question because my concern is that it's not being asked enough. 
we need to be challenged regularly. And I fully believe with all my heart that God has something he wants to do in the big C church all around the world and in this little fellowship here in Coeur d'Alene. And I want us all to be standing on the same foundation and understanding that we may have doubts, but we will not let those doubts lead to unbelief. That we don't have to have an explanation, but our faith can grow as we learn to trust God to do what he does. Always so good. Now the worship team, come on up. And church, if you would close your eyes and bow your heads. I want to read Paul's hymn of praise from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36 over you. Over our time. Because I believe that this hymn of praise in Romans 11 at the very end of that chapter is so encouraging in the midst of the reality of both Isaiah 55 and here in Romans 11. That's that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Paul really ties us together in his hymn of praise here in Romans 11. So with our eyes closed, our heads bowed, I just want you to listen. Quiet your hearts and listen to these words. Listen to the word of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. God, as we just reflect on those words, and Jesus, as we just are filled with joy because we recognize that your sacrifice on the cross was more than sufficient. That your resurrection from the dead was a triumph that was imparted to us because by your wounds we have been healed. Jesus, we recognize that you have saved us. We recognize that we are alive because of you. We recognize that our eternity, Lord, awaits us after this life. Not looking through a mirror dimly at that time, but then we will see you face to face. And Lord, I pray that in this moment as we reflect on the words, God, both of yourself and of Habakkuk, as you guys had this conversation, Lord, would you enable us to have honest conversations and prayer with you like this? That we would look at the situations of our lives and we would be, Lord, just free. Not to disbelieve what you have said. But to look at you, God, and say, we don't get it. I don't understand. Maybe some of us have struggled with not believing. Maybe some of us feel like at this moment, I have disbelieved. God, Lord, there is grace. May we pray the prayer then, if we are in that place or have been there, that the father of that demon-possessed boy prayed in Mark chapter 9 when he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. 
God, I believe, but I'm struggling. It's, it's hard. It's hard when I can't make sense of the world. It's hard when I can't make sense of the situations that have happened. Jesus, in the end, I just so desperately don't want any other kingdom on this earth but yours. I want no other king. I want no other leader, Jesus, than yourself. And we long for that. Creation is groaning for it. And so, Lord, we cry out to you this morning. We see the purpose. We see that you've called us to this time, that this isn't a mistake. But even so, Jesus, could you come quickly? Could you come quickly receive your bride? Rule and reign. In the midst of the tension. It's from you. It's through you. And it's to you that all things exist. And we will praise your name. In the midst of the struggle and the storm, we will praise your name. We will worship you. Thank you for loving us in the midst of our faults. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Let's worship the Lord together.